This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. You know, here at Brain Matters, one thing we really care about, brains. Really? Surprised? Not really. Yeah. I'm not going to play coy. I'm not surprised at all. Good. Okay. I'm glad. It's in the know. title, brain. So. <laughs> it's 50% of our words in our show. It definitely makes sense. Um, and certainly one of the things that we're really keen on is public awareness of brain research. Exactly. So we got contacted recently by a director who is coming out with a movie called Ride the Tiger. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Like, what's it about? Speaking of brain awareness, this movie is focusing on bipolar disorder, and it's focusing on all the perspectives in which bipolar disorder affects individuals, how it affects communities, and about some of the research that scientists are doing to try to better understand this disorder. One of the main goals of this documentary is to subvert the stereotypes that surround mood disorders and psychiatric disorders in general and trying to empower those living with bipolar disorder to better understand what the disease is like and how to live with it and about what are some of the treatments that are out there. Great. That sounds really, really cool. Can't wait to see that. When is it? It's debuting April 13th on PBS, 10 Eastern, 9 Central. And you can actually check it out online. Just Google PBS, Ride the Tiger, and they are streaming it on their website. Awesome. Well, yeah. So shout out to them. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for contacting us. We definitely love promoting this type of stuff. So that's a great segue into the guest on today's episode, which is Dr. Lisa Montegia. She's a professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center, and her research is focused primarily on identifying molecular mechanisms that underlie antidepressants. Okay. So are we talking about SSRIs here, the serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors? Well, those have been the classic and most commonly prescribed antidepressants, but her work is trying to understand how all kinds of antidepressants works. And there's actually been a sort of breakthrough in the most recent years about a drug known as ketamine. Yeah, it's the veterinary uh, tranquilizer, and uh, I think it's also a recreational drug as well. Yes, uh, so this... Those are the two most common known uses of ketamine, uh, but it was found that actually in a clinical setting, a single dose of ketamine caused a extremely rapid, almost instantaneous improvement in mood, and that this improvement in mood lasted longer than the drug was around. It lasted about a week. So this really excited the scientific community. This drug caused a rapid and long-lasting antidepressant effect. So the question is, if we can understand the molecular mechanism of how that works, we could develop even more effective and better drugs for treating mood disorders. Oh man, that sounds great. I'm really happy that we had the PBS documentary to plug with this particular episode because they sound very much related. So check out that documentary and listen to today's episode. So actually, I am now recalling listening to an interesting podcast, a firsthand account of using ketamine to treat depression. It was actually on the Joe Rogan experience. And actually, he had another comedian on, Neil Brennan, co-creator of The Chappelle Show. And he talked about his struggles with depression and what what it was like to use ketamine um, in a clinical setting to treat his depression. So if you want a kind of firsthand comedic 
perspective on what this treatment uh, looks like, then you can check out that podcast. I don't remember exactly what episode it was, but just search Neil Brennan, Joe Rogan Experience, and you'll probably find it. Sounds good, yeah. So, uh, you want to get to today's episode? I think we should do it. All right, well, there's one thing you got to do. You got to perk up them cochlea. Lisa Montaja. I am a professor in the Department of Neuroscience at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. My lab is really focused in the area of molecular psychiatry. We're focused in terms of questions related to antidepressant efficacy, really what triggers an antidepressant response, and can we really understand it, hopefully to have utility for our treatment advance. But my lab also has a second focus that's related to autism, in particular a gene called MACP2 that is the gene linked to Rett syndrome. We've been doing quite a bit trying to understand the role of this gene in the brain in terms of not only behavior, but in terms of synaptic plasticity. So we use an array of techniques, both molecular, cellular, behavioral, electrophysiological, to really sort of complement very molecular questions that we're asking in regards to antidepressant responses and the role of MACP2 in the brain. Okay, so to get into the, the, the big question is about how, I'm assuming, how do antidepressants work mm-hmm. and what are the, the mechanisms that would allow uh, that to, to work in the brain? So how do you make models to try to study that in, in a scientific way? So depression is a very heterogeneous disease. Major depressive disorder can be quite debilitating, and it can be triggered by a range of symptoms. And that really becomes the complexity of it, because you can have patients that all suffer from major depression but have very different symptomology. So when you try to model that in an animal, it becomes quite complex. What are you going to focus on? So people try to actually focus on maybe one particular aspect like anhedonia or perhaps disturbances in sleep or whatever your focus may be. One way that people commonly try to study depression is through stress models. So people will take animals and will stress them to see if they can sort of induce a depressive-like state, if you will. Is that because stress has just been linked to depression? There's a comorbidity. Exactly. And so the um, idea behind this is really based on the fact that there is a comorbidity between stress and depression. It's not as if everybody that is stressed will get depression or everyone that suffers from depression necessarily has stress. But there's a comorbidity. And so if you stress an animal, you can measure certain changes in factors, for example, in the blood, stress hormones and how they change. You can Mm -hmm. see disturbances in terms of sleep. They're more quantifiable type behavior. So people will often do that. What's the difference between a just feeling sad, you know, just having a bad day and like depression in the like the, the clinical term for like major depression? Is there any real distinction there? Or is it the difference between something that kind of comes and goes and something that sort of is like a long term experience? So there's, I think, quite a bit of debate on really major depressive disorder and really trying to identify the sort of patient population, if you will. And in general, people do that quite well if you take two clinicians that are trained and they both interview, because it is through interview assessment. Mm-hmm. The diagnosis actually can be quite, quite good, but it is based on what someone is telling you. 
So it's not just a moment of feeling sad. You know, you can, for example, um, someone that loses a parent is going to feel sad, and that's very justifiable and very normal. Mm -hmm. But there's an expectation that at a certain point they should start to rebound. People that suffer from major depressive disorder can be very debilitating, where they literally can't get out of bed in the morning. It can impact every aspect of their life. And in individuals that do not respond to treatment, they're the ones most at risk for suicide. How, how, how many people does that affect? So uh, the, the latest US, estimates from 2013 put over 41,000 individuals as suicide completers and only about 16,000, I say only 18, 16, but about 16,000 individuals that died due to homicide. So it's more than a twofold increase, yeah. but it's a subject that is really not discussed. Well, yeah. I think in terms of suicide and the sort of taboo associated with it, but there's also a taboo. I mean, people are more open to some degree talking about antidepressants because everyone knows someone that takes an antidepressant. And people talk a lot about discussions and how raising awareness can actually maybe stimulate more of a discussion. And I think that's true to a degree. But I think the thing that's really lacking is treatment advance. If you think about it from, say, individuals you know in the 70s that had cancer, no one talked about it. Why? Because it was a death sentence. If you think about HIV in the 80s, again, people didn't discuss it because it was pretty much a death sentence. But what happened is we made very rapid advances in many types of cancers. And now through early detection and treatment, people can be cancer-free. And people can be HIV positive and have very long lives. But we haven't made that advance yet in terms of more rapidly or more effective treatments in many mental illnesses, including depression. So with that, I think it's difficult to talk about. What do you do if you have your spouse is suicidal. There's not as if there's any treatment. And it, I think it can be a very difficult topic where if you have treatment, it gives, I think, more hope. It allows more of a dialogue. So I think if we have more treatment advance, I think it will stimulate more of a discussion on these topics. So obviously, it's been it's, mental illness has been a hard topic for uh, us to progress in. What's been the current dogma for how we think depression has been working in the brain? So it's really been unclear really what triggers depression, what is the underlying neurocircuitry of depression? It's very, a very difficult question because, again, there's so many different symptoms. It's not as if everybody has one core symptom that they're focusing on. So there's probably many different things that are happening in the brain. And what I think makes it particularly complex is that there's so many different ways you can get depression. You can have major depressive disorder, but perhaps you have postpartum depression or you have bipolar so there's so many different components in terms of types of disease that probably are triggering different neurocircuitry. So there's been work trying to elucidate particular pathways in the brain using optogenetics and similar approaches. But one thing that the field has really been focused on is whatever happens in terms of an antidepressant, sort of the converse means depression. So it's sort of the chicken and the egg type approach. Mm -hmm. And... It's an interesting question. Is it really a converse approach? We, we don't know to some extent. Is an antidepressant really fixing the underlying pathophysiology? That's, I think, um, a really important question. If you take an antidepressant, are you really fixing something? Or is an antidepressant response 
just sort of treating a symptom or symptoms and you still have the underlying depression. I, I mean, see. I feel, I view it's probably more of the latter. So our lab has been focusing more on trying to understand antidepressant responses. Now, whether those particular changes or mechanisms that we identify have anything to do with depression is really unclear. And they may not. And that's okay. Because, again, I, in my view, I think it's probably two separate questions. What you're saying is you have compounds that have antidepressant effects that potentially work. You want to just figure out what happens at the cellular level. Like what's when, you t- when that drug is, is on board or in the body, how does the biology change? So what we're interested in is trying to understand really what triggers an antidepressant effect. And we've been doing some recent work, which we'll discuss on um, this compound called ketamine. But really, what we want to understand is what triggers an antidepressant effect through traditional antidepressant drugs, through ketamine. Is there a common point of convergence, a common downstream point Mm -hmm. that's necessary for an antidepressant effect? And I think those are really important questions. Do they tell us anything about the pathophysiology of depression? I'm not sure. But I still think they're really important, relevant questions, because if we can in any way contribute to faster, more efficacious antidepressant treatment, it has huge clinical implications for a great many people. And this, again, gets to like this molecular pathway or something gets mm-hmm. triggered. Are you trying to find a convergence between compounds maybe eventually come? Would, would that be like a golden, yeah. you know, the grail you're looking for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Because um, monoamines work through, and monoamine drugs include things like fluoxetine, Prozac, Wellbutrin. They all increase monoamines in some manner very quickly. But the antidepressant effects take a while, usually several weeks if they're going to happen. And we've been studying this drug called ketamine, which is a non-competitive NMD receptor blocker. So it just means it has a different initial target, and it produces a very rapid effect. Mm. So to us, it suggests that there has to be more than one way to pharmacologically trigger an antidepressant response, which is interesting. So we've been trying to work on how you do it in terms of monoamine, the more classical antidepressants and ketamine. But the idea is just the trigger, the fact that ketamine can do it very rapidly within a couple of hours versus a couple of weeks suggests that the initial trigger has to be different. But is there some downstream commonality that's necessary? Perhaps you can trigger an antidepressant response many different ways as long as you have this final common denominator. Mm -hmm. So that's really what we're interested in. I see. Okay, cool. Is it still a chemical imbalance problem? Is that kind of I know that that idea has sort of reigned for a long period of time that a lot of mental illness would be potentially due to imbalance in release of particular like monoamines, for example. Mm-hmm. How, how much validity is that, does that still hold? And is there any sort of things that have either continually supported that? Or is there, is there just a lot of research showing that that's just one component or one potential way to get a depressed-like behavior? So I don't think that it's as straightforward as the fact that it is an imbalance of a neurotransmitter, for example, serotonin. I mean, that was sort of the classic cartoons that you saw Mm -hmm. in literature and in the news. I think it's much more complicated than that. In fact, there's really no clear, concrete evidence that everybody that suffers from depression has a change that's uniform in terms of serotonin, and that's what's triggering it. We really don't know. We know clearly if you deplete all serotonin, you can trigger an array of effects that can be very detrimental. Monoaminergic drugs increase serotonin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's fixing an imbalance per se. Mm. So again, the underlying causes of depression are really probably 
very multifaceted. We know that there is a genetic component in terms of twin studies and family studies, but of all psychiatric illnesses, depression is probably the one with the least genetics, the least heritability, I guess I should say. I'm sure that's made it difficult to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's really, in one way, it's very, it's very complicated questions that nearly can seem overwhelming. But at the other hand, it's such an exciting time because there's been such advances in terms of technology, approaches, way to really try to understand the brain. And I think some of the recent work that a lot of it has come from the clinic in terms of the identification of ketamine. I mean, if I sat here and presented my talk and said to people, based on all of our preclinical work, ketamine seems like it should have clinical utility, I very well would probably be laughed at because there's a lot of things that work preclinically that have failed miserably when you try to go to clinic. But this works clinically. Yeah. So to have this reverse translation approach of really trying to build on a clinical finding and to understand the molecular mechanism of it and to take ideas as they emerge from the clinic to really sort of test the hypothesis, I think is very powerful. Yeah. Could you tell us that quick story? How did ketamine, what, why it's very rapid mm -hmm. and then it lasts a long time too, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's that combination. Is, is that correct? That was very exciting. So ketamine um, was actually tried in patients and it was shown these were patients in the initial groups that were treatment resistant. So they hadn't responded to, to the classics. traditional classic antidepressants. And they gave a very low dose of ketamine um, intravenously. And they noticed very quickly that some patients responded. They appeared to really have an antidepressant effect. And in some of those patients, the drug effect lasted for days and weeks. Not in everyone, but it was very robust at times. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do? How do you sort of sustain this? How do you understand this? How do you explain this? That, that, that gets to that. It's not just the drug being in the, in the system and affecting yeah. it and then it goes away. Then they, they, you know, they feel bad again. It's some sort of like prolonged, you know, way Effect. longer than the drug is in the system. Exactly. So. And I think that's one aspect of it. I think the other aspect of it that's really exciting is the rapid nature. The idea that you can pharmacologically trigger a rapid antidepressant effect, we didn't realize that that was possible. Yeah. So you can pharmacologically do it. So you can imagine if somebody comes in potentially into an ER setting that is suicidal to quickly stabilize them or someone that is really suffering to immediately be able to generate an antidepressant effect, it's just a huge, huge move forward in the field. Mm -hmm. So it's generated a lot of excitement. So we've been, for the most part, focusing on trying to understand what is triggering this rapid effect? Can we, for really the first time in the field, take drug target and try to understand how it's mediating its effect? With classical antidepressants, since they take several weeks to work, you give the drug for several weeks and you see changes. But what are causative? It's hard when you've had a drug that can be doing many different things around for several weeks. But here it's a single dose that triggers a rapid antidepressant effect. So therefore, can we really think about what a trigger is? What is necessary to trigger an antidepressant effect? Yeah. So that's what we've been really focused on. I think the long-term effects are really interesting, and it's something that we, I know, as well as others, would like to focus on. But at this point, all of our work has mostly been focused on this rapid effect. Because we figure if we can focus on the rapid effect, then you can start to build on that as you go towards trying to understand the long-term effects. Okay, great. Um, what got you interested in maybe studying psychiatry at a molecular level and mm -hmm. um, maybe just even your basic interest in neuroscience? So in terms of, as a faculty member, having an area, I've 
I really, I think the brain is such a fascinating area. And the questions of psychiatry, I think, are just really daunting, but at the same time, so tremendously captivating. We know very little about the neurobiology, the pathophysiology of psychiatric disorders. We just don't. We know very little about treatments, but yet we do have some treatments. It's interesting because in neurology, um, when you think about many classical diseases, say, for example, Alzheimer's disease, we know that there's a certain population of cells that die or with Parkinson's or Huntington's. Mm. But what do you do? It's funny. We know much less about most psychiatric illnesses, but yet we do have some treatments. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting type of question of how when we study the brain, depending on it, you know, whether we're looking at basic or more of a clinical disease focus, even among these different diseases, how do we approach it? Is it cell death? In the cases of psychiatric illnesses, there's usually not cell death. What we see suggesting there has to be functional changes that occur. So what are those? Yeah. And where do you look? Like that, I think that's exactly. exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so we've taken our sort of starting point looking at a region of the brain called the hippocampus based on a lot of initial imaging studies that suggested the hippocampus may be involved in depression. We by no means think that this is the only region that could be involved with an antidepressant response, but we think it's an important region based on our data so far. Clearly, there has to be circuit-level changes that occur to trigger complex behavior, but at least it's a starting point. Yeah. And then hopefully with time, we can build upon that. When you started off, uh, like say, even in college, was this a pathway to becoming a scientist that you sort of envisioned or did it come about through a longer winding road or? Oh, um, yeah, a very, very strange left turn type really? thing. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, my undergrad degree is in microbiology and I absolutely loved microbiology. It was wonderful. And through just a number of things that sort of happened, I ended up in industry. And what was funny is that I had had several offers in industry, all in microbiology type settings, mm. except for one. And this was just someone had misread my CV and they were looking for a molecular biologist and it was late at night and they had seen microbiologists and didn't even really pay <laughs> close attention. And uh, they ended up calling me and they liked me, even though they realized very quickly that <laughs> I was not really exactly what they were looking for. And uh, this actually happened at Abbott Laboratories, uh, where I went up and I interviewed, and I really liked the group. And I found out that it was a neuroscience area. Okay. I ended up doing it. And what did you have to learn, I guess, like immediately? So I accepted the job, and the first thing I did was go to the bookstore and bought a book on eukaryotic cell biology because I'd never had a eukaryotic class in my life, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is really sad, but it's true. Yeah. And I read it, and certain things I found particularly perplexing as to why certain things I, were such a big deal in neuroscience when I thought everyone knew them. And it's just such a difference in field. You know, someone told me once, like, couldn't you combine microbiology in the brain? And it's like, well, bacterial infections in the brain and you die. So not yeah. really. <laughs> Even though here with the work on the microbiome and the sort of gut-brain interaction, no, possibly, yeah. possibly. <laughs> That's um, picking up, so. Exactly. So uh, I worked worked at Abbott. I worked with some really, really wonderful people. Where is that, by the way? In Chicago. In Chicago. Okay. Yep, really wonderful people. I learned a great deal. And I told them that I was in the process a year and a half into it of applying to go back to graduate school. And they were very interested in me staying. Yeah. I was, you know, very adamant that I had to have a PhD. I was going back. And so in the end, it was able to be worked out that I could finish my PhD in an academic lab in Chicago 
while I continued to work for Abbott. Okay. So I maintained myself as a Abbott employee while I worked in um, Dr. Marina Wolf's lab. And it was really my first foray into neuroscience. Even though I worked in a neuroscience group in industry, it was really as a molecular biology component. Okay. So if I needed part of the hippocampus, I made a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really funny. We were doing all these beautiful work, but it really, you know, was molecular. And so finishing off a PhD with Marina's lab really allowed me to see much more in vivo neuroscience. Okay. Yeah, we actually talked to Marina on uh-huh. a previous episode. I saw that. So and she's wonderful. She was great. And uh, so did you guys have overlapping research or did she have something kind of like complementary to what you were doing at Abbott? It was yeah. very different. That was very, the whole point. It had okay. to be different so that it would not in any way infringe on what I was doing. Okay, that makes so, sense. Yeah. Good. I, that's probably good. So then you Yeah, had a, it was. It was. It was actually in drug abuse. And so it was something I knew nothing about. Yeah. And I learned a great deal. So she was a wonderful, wonderful mentor. Got a wonderful mentorship. Did you then stay, stick with Abbott after getting your PhD for a while? or After I got my PhD, I ended up, over the course of being in industry, I'd met several great scientists that had came in for different reasons to give talks, to be part of a scientific board, whatever the case may be. And several people had been very kind saying, if you're ever interested in a postdoc. And so as I was finishing off my PhD, right towards the end, Marina said, you should interview for a postdoc. This will be wonderful. You should think about it. Mm-hmm. And so I went ahead and not only interviewed, but ended up pulling the trigger. And I did a postdoc with Eric Nessler. Mm-hmm. And was this at Mount Sinai? Was this was there? at Yale. And it was really great because it really, um, the idea of going to Eric's lab was that, again, for all this molecular stuff that I had done, and then with Marina, I learned how to approach sort of drug abuse and think more in vivo. I realized that I really needed more of an output, not just a molecular, but more of a neuroscience change. So from Eric's lab, uh, I learned a great deal of behavior. Okay. And, you know, it was also focused on addiction, but it was building on a different question for Marina. So it was a very dynamic time. So that built your behavioral. So now you mm-hmm. have like a molecular backbone, a microbiology backbone, and now a behavior. So it seems like you're really well fit then to sort of like tackle <laughs> those problems from all those. Really well fit. Okay. You were very kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think Eric is a great mentor. He's very dynamic. And a lot of the things I learned from him not only went from the science, but also in terms of how to put a story together, how to move forward, how to things don't work. You just keep moving forward. Okay. And while you know that to some extent, to see someone that's so driven about that is really invigorating in and of itself. And just also learning how another person approaches a scientific question. So there were so many layers of, you know, mentoring that you get along the way. Sometimes you don't even realize it, but you walk away like, wow, I really learned how to do this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's one thing. When you start out as a graduate student and you're looking for a mentor, what do you look for? And people don't really talk about that, right? People say, well, you want to work for someone nice. Well, yeah, okay, you don't want to work for a jerk. (laughs) Sure. But at the same point, it's such an important decision. You want someone that years down the road, you're applying for a fellowship. You've left their lab a long time ago. And suddenly you realize you need one more letter of recommendation and it's due tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) Who can you call that's going to drop everything and do it? Yeah. Who is really viewing you as, yes, I want you to succeed and I'm going to be supportive of you. Mm-hmm. Qualities are so important and it's not obvious at the time. It's, you know, sometimes the person that 
is really pushing things forward. Yeah, they might not always be the most nicest at every part, but they're pushing things forward. Sometimes people that necessarily seem the nicest, well, are you getting the most out of it? I mean, there's a lot of things that go into being a productive student. And that is having a mentor that's really well-rounded, that can really help you, that is invested in you, that wants you to learn not only how to do science and to think about it, but how to write, how to make figures, how to analyze data, that's really going to push to get that paper out the door. Yeah. And that's where I got very lucky. I have two really, really incredible mentors. And, you know, that's really such a wonderful thing to have, knowing that you have people there that are supportive. Yeah, I think we haven't even, even on this show, talked too much about how important mentorship really is in the science field. It's, it's, it's absolutely invaluable. And you're, you're basically, your future will sink or swim based, I think, extremely on the quality and the sort of like people that you're around most. Does that invigorate you and want you to make you continue to do it? Or does it, you know, not? <laughs> well, and also I think the most important thing, what you have to do during your graduate and your postdoc years is you have to publish. I yeah. mean, if you haven't published, it's hard for people to know what you've really done. That's what I tell my graduate students now. Your data doesn't count until it's published because no one knows about it. Mm -hmm. We can have the most beautiful data in the world. And until it's published, no one really knows about it. We haven't presented it. It hasn't been out there. If you join a lab that isn't really publishing, do you really think you're going to suddenly be publishing like crazy? Mm -hmm. I mean, people think that. But the reality of it, as I always say, is it's really like dating. You can't change the person. Yeah. They are who they are. So you have to look at track records. And I think that's important. If people are really publishing... I think you have a chance. It's nothing is given, but hopefully they're going to be really invested and being able to help you and really push it together. Where if you're in a lab where they're publishing a bunch of, say, little papers, well, you're probably going to publish a bunch of little papers. Mm -hmm. If it's a lab that tends to hold papers for a really big, that's probably going to be the strategy because the PI, that's their lab and that's how they view science and that's how they approach science. And there's no right or wrong, but what are you looking for? Can we talk about then how you transitioned to form your own lab and sort of, could you talk about maybe what it felt like when you first started, when you had your own lab Mm -hmm. and maybe what you've learned from, from having one? So I really thought a lot about going back into industry or academics. And I've been very fortunate to have several postdoctoral fellowships, to have some nice papers that seem to be, you know, in the process of getting cited. And so I was very fortunate to be able uh, to have some job offers. And in the end, I stayed at UT Southwestern. And to be honest, I think because my background was a little bit out of the typical traditional one, because I had spent time in industry, I was much more willing to take risk, much more willing to invest in technology, to the first person I hired to do, you know, synaptic transmission to do things that I thought were going to be important to build on, to be much more of complementary type approaches so that we could do everything from making a mouse to looking at molecular, cellular biochemistry, behavior, electrophysiology. I mean, a lot of different techniques that we really are very actively doing. So I think it gave me a handle to really know that I had to sort of expand that papers and grants now anymore, you have to do so many techniques that it would also be good training for trainees, but it was just going to be necessary for me to move forward. So I think when I started, I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to just move forward because I felt I was behind, if you will, even though I really wasn't, but I felt like I was behind because I spent time in industry. So I really need to catch up. I really need to move forward. 
Mm-hmm. I really need to, you know, get an ROI. I need to be publishing. And so I started my lab and I really felt that, you know, I needed to have a paper pretty much coming together. I needed to have something out in two years. I needed to move on it. You know, yeah. it wasn't. Was that pretty stressful or? <laughs> it, it was stressful. I didn't. How can I say it's, it wasn't, it was stressful, but it wasn't like a debilitant. It was stress in terms of, okay, I really want to give this a try. I'm really working. I'm going to be here and I'm going to, you know, do everything I can to make this hopefully work. Yeah. And when you start off, you never really know what's going to work. Yeah. You, know, you have ideas, you were hired you for your, your ideas and-, and hopefully it's going to work. So I, my goal was to focus on this depression. And then I started a sort of a second project related on autism, hoping that something would hit in terms yeah. of sending CB2. And I was very fortunate that I've been able to move forward on both of those projects. So that's been actually exciting. I think right now it's a really dynamic time because I still feel like we have a lot of ideas of what we want to do, of things that we can do. I have really good people in my lab, amazingly good people that are versatile. And so it, I think, really feeds on itself. Could we mention maybe some of the avenues of research we haven't talked about that you're currently working on? Mm-hmm. We haven't even talked about your, say the name of that gene again. That's MECP2. To, and that's related to Rett syndrome. Uh-huh. Is that correct? Okay. Uh-huh. Could you talk a little bit about that, how you got into that maybe? Yeah. The initial interest in MECP2 really came from the fact that it's called MECP2. And I should say MECP2 is a uh, correct name to say it was MECB2, and I sometimes slide back into MECB2. But what I thought was interesting was Huda Zagby's lab had identified the gene as the cause of Rett syndrome, which was this autism spectrum disorder. And it was interesting because it's a transcriptional repressor. And as a molecular biologist, I thought that was really intriguing. We know that if you don't turn on genes in the nervous system, it can be very bad in terms of disease states, plasticity, and a number of different things that can go wrong. Okay. But what happens if you don't turn off genes? And the role of transcriptional repression was completely unknown. And I thought that was a really interesting question. And I thought from our molecular background, we could actually try and approach this in a way that hopefully would not only tell us something about MACB2, but also about Rett syndrome and ultimately transcriptional repression. So we've um, done a lot of behavior and electrophysiology and really tried to look at the role of MECP2 in the brain, its effect on synaptic transmission. And with that, uh, MECP2 forms a complex with HDAC1 and HDAC2. This can be one complex that can form. So we've actually been looking at the role of HDACs, in particular HDAC1 and 2, and their contributions to synaptic plasticity and learning and memory. So it's really opened up this whole avenue that uh, has really been quite interesting. We've learned a tremendous amount about it's a really dynamic field. Yeah. And, and that's an epigenetic regulator, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So so MECP2 can form a complex with HF1 and 2, but it's not the only complex it can yeah. form. And so it was just sort of a starting point to look sure. at. And right yeah. now there's been a tremendous amount of interest of HDACs and what they do because there's been some drug development towards HDAC inhibitors for different therapeutics. Okay. So it's a class of, it's a family of genes and there's different classes, and we've been focusing more on the class 1 HDACs, trying to really understand the role of the individual subunits in the CNS. Could we talk maybe one more time about the pathways involved in this rapid mm-hmm. depression? Because it seems like you're really breaking down these pathways and trying to, you know, study it at a at the level that it needs, which is like, what's the mechanism in which this can come about? So, so what we did is we published a paper really proposing very novel mechanism where we're actually linking the NMDA receptor to a signaling mechanism. We're not just saying that ketamine causes a change in a particular gene or protein, 
but actually trying to link it to the NMDA receptor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big advance because, like I said previously, with um, typical antidepressants, you give the drugs for several weeks and you look and there are many changes that can occur. But what's causing it? And how do you go from this increases in serotonin to what pathway may be important to drive the behavior? Where here, clinically, you get a very rapid effect. Behaviorally, in animals, you get a very rapid effect. So how do you go from linking the receptor to a pathway that may drive the behavior? Mm -hmm. It's almost like the answer is in that very short window. Exactly. And so that really, I think, was what fascinated us. Mm -hmm. And we've been the first ones to really link the receptor with a pathway. And so now you have a testable hypothesis. And we've tried to test this many different ways. But our pathway, what we are proposing is that ketamine, this low dose of ketamine, we think the low dose is important. When you start to get to higher doses, you're just blocking NMDA receptors and you may be picking up very uh, nonspecific type effects, many of the adverse effects that can be associated with the drug. At the very low dose, we are suggesting that you're blocking spontaneous NMDA receptors that inhibit a particular pathway, a particular kinase, if you will, and that that then desuppresses or sort of rapidly results in an increase in protein translation that is necessary to sort of drive the behavioral effect. And as it's driving the behavioral effect, we see this sort of plasticity that's emerging in the brain. And so we're trying to study this. So is this plasticity, you know, what is it? What is it good for? How can we better understand this pathway? Can we come in at different points to try and understand it and manipulate it? Mm -hmm. What are other components that may be involved? And as we do this, we're doing stuff with other antidepressants. Again, is there this point of convergence? That, I think, is really the ultimate question. Is there What is necessary to mediate an antidepressant response? To, to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to sort of add about what you do or anything that you're passionate about that you'd like to add to the discussion or no i think i i think you've covered most of it uh so i feel actually very passionate about science i think this is like i said a wonderful wonderful time to be in science yeah i know that there's a lot of questions what people have in terms of funding and careers and what their future is but i think at the same point it's such a dynamic time that regardless of what people may choose to do down the road to be trained in a lab where you actually, you know, obtain a PhD is a critical training period where you learn not only critical thinking, but how to analyze data, how to write in a clear, concise, it has so much utility in so many different ways. And what we're doing is just, you know, one small piece of trying to understand what happens in the brain, in this case, in terms of antidepressant efficacy or autism. But it really is the advances that have been made in terms of technology, our understanding of the brain approaches has really just been phenomenal. So I really encourage people to learn more about the brain through discussions, through your podcasts, through community outreach, because it really is an exciting time. And I think we're going to see a lot of advances that are kind of move forward, hopefully in terms of diseases, not only in terms of the basic neurobiology, but really in terms of ways that synergistically move the field forward in so many different ways. Well, good time to be around and thank you. Absolutely. I really appreciate it, Lisa. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you would like to learn more about the science or scientists on today's episode, 
head on over to our website, brainpodcast.com, and follow us on Facebook and at brainpodcast on Twitter. Once again, make sure to check out the documentary Ride the Tiger on PBS April 13th at 10 Eastern, 9 Central, or you can just go to the website pbs.org and look for Ride the Tiger. They got the full video streaming online. If you like the show, we would really love to hear what you think about it. So please go to iTunes and give us a ranking or a review. We love hearing from you, and it makes us feel a little less alone out here. The transition music you heard at the beginning of the episode was called Nat Sherman Arpeggiator by Diamondstein. And the music you're listening to now is Artists of the Floating World by Immune. You can check out these artists and more at dreamcatalog.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.